The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Moody's turned negative on the U.S., lowering its outlook but keeping its AAA credit rating intact while warning over political polarization. As new House Speaker Mike Johnson tries to keep the lights on ahead of a looming shutdown deadline. Asian stocks search for direction while U.S. futures turn negative, giving up ground after the tech-heavy Nasdaq notches its best daily performance since May. Novo Nordisk publishes positive results from its closely watched cardiovascular trial as the Danish pharma giant tries to extend the gap over U.S. rival Eli Lilly. And U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping gear up for a high-stakes meeting in San Francisco as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen lays the groundwork seeking to calm tensions with her U.S. counterpart. We do not seek to decouple our economy from China's. This would be damaging to both the U.S. and China and destabilizing for the, for the world. Moody's has lowered its outlook on the U.S. from stable to negative. The ratings agency cited large fiscal deficits, political polarization and a decline in debt affordability. Moody's went on to say the downside risk may no longer be fully offset by the sovereign's unique credit strengths. It is the last of the three major agencies to hold a top rating for the U.S. after Fitch also cut its rating to AA+ in August, joining S&P, which had held the rating since 2011. In a statement, the White House said it disagreed with the shift. And let's take a look at how U.S. futures are now perched for the trading week. In the red is what we are seeing on the back of what has been a very strong run for equities stateside. It looks as though fatigue is setting in for the Monday session as we count down a triple-digit point drop anticipated for the Dow. Jones index as you can see but the other major boards also pushing into the red at this early hour. I want to take you to Asia and what we've seen across the board mostly upbeat action really reflecting some of the green we still saw on that US session Friday. The uh, Hong Kong market up about a tenth of a percent along with Chinese stocks. Uh, somewhat of a slim range on Japanese market to this point just 17 points to the upside or just a fraction and the Australian market tilting into the red so it does still tell you a note of caution across these markets in Asia today. The dollar. So there's been a lot of firmness still in that dollar story. And don't forget, the yield has come off. And that has been something that has, uh, of course, uh, meant some implications for the dollar trade. But uh, the dollar index this morning only moving a fraction. So uh, the mood music, I think, just defying what we've seen around that move by Moody's. Euro dollar perched a fraction up, uh, but still off the 107 handle. We're 106.83. The dollar yen rate, it has been one that has flip-flopped over uh, above the 150 mark. It's been below it, of course, around the 149 handle. But this is still indicating what you're still seeing uh, strengthen the US dollar versus the Japanese yen with that ultra dovish look still really from the Japanese not moving as much as the market had thought towards the exit and a very slow pace when it comes to tackling uh, some of the monetary policies still in the system to what we've got on the pound 122.27 in the morning trade so there is a bias towards uh, the, some of the uh, European currencies in the morning session Arabile.
Thanks, Karen. Now, U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson has unveiled his new plan to avert a potential government shutdown. With just five days until the deadline, Johnson opted for a laddered continuing resolution to stopgap spending measures that would last until January 19th and February the 2nd, respectively. Now, the proposal is facing an uphill battle in the House with lawmakers from both sides expressing criticism. NBC's Ali Rafa filed this report. There are just five days left until the government shuts down. Some of what's at stake pay for military and federal workers, while Social Security and Medicare checks will still go out. New House Speaker Mike Johnson now pushing an untested plan to keep the government open with a two-step approach. The first would fund some parts of the government until January, the second funding the rest until February. But notably absent from the plan, military aid to Israel and spending cuts. Johnson can only afford to lose four votes, and right now, at least three House Republicans publicly oppose his plan. The new speaker trying to convince hardline holdouts of the urgency felt by some members of his caucus. It is too urgent. Uh, we can't mm -hmm. sit back and do nothing. But Johnson's plan may hinge on Democrats' support. It looks gimmicky to me, but I'm open to what the House is talking about. Relying on Democrats could prove risky. It was former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to work with Democrats on the last continuing resolution that ultimately cost him the gavel. Well, let's just pick our way through the implications here. And some of the, the points raised by Moody's, uh, Moody's, rather, the U.S. fiscal strength may no longer be uh, fully offsetting the sovereign credit strength. So well, what does that mean? Effectively, we know that uh, a lot of market participants think that there's no other alternative when it comes to the strength of the U.S. fiscal position. And, you know, you want to park your money in the safest of safe haven debt sometimes, and that's still U.S. Treasuries. And they say, look, there's not going to be a buyer strike anytime soon. So that is something that the market looks out for. And is this time different in terms of buyers' willingness to hold U.S. debt? Well, we've seen even in recent weeks, fund managers have been talking about the strength of the U.S. Treasury market. Yeah. They like the yields. They like the story that we're going to see and they think that that yield is going to come down even more because of the credit cycle and where monetary policy has been very aggressive to the upside. Now we're getting to slightly weaker conditions so that yield should come down with potential changes in monetary policy, which should iron out some of the, the issues we've seen in the market. Is this time different? I think that's still been the question of have we got an issue around the U.S. debt position. Uh, in terms of what you've got on some of the, the political side, I thought that was fascinating. We're setting up for what, another potential shutdown. That's a problem. The two sides of the House can't even agree on why we've got an issue. Republicans hitting out and effectively what they think are escalating deficits here, escalating debt position, that there's not been enough hard work from the Biden administration to tackle that. But uh, I think the uh, Democrats, on the other hand, are saying it's dysfunction. It's extremism yeah. that you're seeing in the Republican Party. So uh, the, the dysfunction, <laughs> the, I think, between both sides of the aisle is still yeah. a problem. The Moody's has highlighted that. 100%. And this is actually the reason we got to this point to begin with, right? Moody's have been saying that the, the fact that we can't get or have this political polarization in Congress has raised risks then of a successive governments not being able to reach consensus on a plan to slow the decline in debt affordability. And yet, straight after the commentary from Moody's, you get both the White House saying that it's extremism from the Republican side and then Republicans blaming the Democrats as well. So you're continuing this repetitive cycle of having done exactly what Moody's has been warning against. will be interesting to see what the economy reacts like to this. 
plus of course what the market kind of says uh, after this one after Fitch downgraded the U.S. in August, right? You saw the stock market uh, immediately come up with a few losses. NASDAQ dropped off 2.2%. Uh, S&P um, uh, falling 1.4%. Even the Dow Jones around 1%. Yes, it's not the extreme levels you saw uh, back in 2011 when you had that initial shock from the impact of that downgrade coming through uh, back then uh, from, uh, who was it back then? It was... Was it, was it Fitch? No, it wasn't. S&P back in the day. Back yeah, in the it day, was S&P right? back in 2011. Exactly. Mm. So perhaps a waning impact from them, but still that impact would, would probably be interesting to note. Yeah, the number, $33 trillion and counting, close to $34 trillion, yeah. in fact, when it comes to the debt issue. But if you look at what we've got in terms of uh, GDP, national uh, GDP, we've got 22% higher, uh, effectively, is what uh, the debt is than uh, the GDP. So... We're looking at 27 trillion on that number. So, you know, we're still talking large numbers mm. all round. And the question is whether the revenue, what's coming in, is enough to service the debt. And I think the, the market is still looking at the growth story as a result to see whether this time is different. Mm. But in terms of market risks, I mean, the market participants were reacting to concerns around the debt market the other week when we got close to the 5% handle on that US 10 year Treasury yield. So they're not immune or not ignoring all of the warning signs out there. Yeah. So I think there is a, a judgment that's been taking place in the market. But uh, this week, yeah, the data is going to be interesting to, as we talk about whether there's going to be any form of a hard landing, soft landing, what type of recessionary of elements the market's uh, looking and at. And that is on the back of, well, or the anticipation of that CPI print, of course, right? And, yeah. and that drop-off on that will be quite interesting to note. I actually just wanted to point towards something as well that I found very interesting when we talk about Moody's. They still came out with a report as well last week kind of point towards the health of the U.S. consumer too. Um, and, they, and they were speaking really about the buy now, pay late, later segment mm. of the market, really saying that it has grown rapidly over the past decade. The value of buy now, pay later transactions was 160 billion U.S. dollars in 2021. That figure then almost doubling to 300 billion this year, the anticipation then uh, by World Pay Report. So they're worried that with all these interest rates that having been as high as they are, slowing economic growth, sky high inflation, you know, are those credit losses likely to rise as a result and impact the buy now, pay later uh, segment of the economy? Well, Klarna, which of course is a big uh, buy now, pay later uh, um, you know, player in this market, it's actually said that it lacks nuance when Moody's came out with this report. So also fighting back, saying actually, it's it, it's uh, they actually put out a, a word saying here that the BNP BNPL debt is unsecured. It is less risky than secured bank loans, and tell that to the 2008 housing crisis. So a bit of a fight back there. Oh, and the reality is very little hitting the markets, though, and you can see yeah. sentiment Friday session very strong still across the board in the green. And the rally on the Nasdaq, what, 2% higher is what we witnessed. Uh, we still have very strong running streak, uh, positive 10 positive sessions out of 11. And in this session, the biggest one-day percentage rise was in, since about late May. So very strong bounce taking place at the tail end of some of these gains as well. And the big question is whether the market rally can continue from here. And what's going to be key, the data, we're looking out for CPI and retail sales. Tuesday, Wednesday on that day, those two data points. And uh, as a result, Treasury is very much in focus. We've glided off the high water level of 5-odd percent. And you can see we are tracking 4.64% in the morning session. So close to that 4.5% mark.
San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly says higher monetary policy is helping bring down the pace of inflation, but not to a level where policymakers should feel too comfortable. Daly, who will be an FOMC voting member in 2024, did not commit to a position on the future of rates. She said the Fed would evaluate the data and move accordingly. It is far too early to declare victory. And I think that's why, you know, there's a lot of demand for certainty that we would say we're done or we're definitely hiking. But the truth is we don't know. And we shouldn't really declare one side or the other because prudent policy, optimal policy, means we stand in the ready position, ready to stop if the inflation data continue to perform well and ready to raise again to get to sufficiently restrictive if we need to pull the reins back on the economy even more. It's a busy week ahead with politics, earnings and that inflation data packing the agenda. Sylvia joins us now for a look ahead. Sylvia. That's right, Karen. Well, earnings are still coming thick and fast on both sides of the pond. We'll get a check on the U.S. retail sector this week with numbers from Macy's, Walmart and Gap all due on Thursday. But there's more coming up this week. We have also a lot coming up when it comes to macro data with the UK, um, the US and also the Eurozone posting inflation figures for October before central bankers gather in Germany for the Frankfurt European Banking Congress on Friday. On the foreign policy front, it will also be a busy week. Um, we have, of course, the UK Prime Minister um, Rishi Sunak speaking later today, um, outlining his foreign policy priorities at the London Lord Mayor's Banquet today. And of course, also an important week when it comes to the uh, uh, meeting between the President, uh, US, uh, US President Joe Biden and his counterpart Xi Jinping. They're due to meet in San Francisco later this week. And I also have to add that we could also see European sanctions on Russia also coming up this week. Now, last but not least, we're also monitoring the U.S. Uh, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has less than five days to prevent a government shutdown. And one House Republican has told NBC News we're ungovernable. So also plenty of focus on the U.S. economy, Arabile. Sylvia, thank you so much for that. Now, coming up on the show, Annette joins us to take a look at the political turmoil roiling Germany's coalition government from all sides of the spectrum. Plus, Juliana will go through Novo Nordisk's latest trial data for its blockbuster WeGovi drug. But before all that, we'll hear from Bullfinger CEO Thomas Schulz as the firm confirms its group outlook for the year. Don't miss that. It's a first on conversation coming up next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Bullfinger has confirmed its guidance for the full year after posting a third quarter net profit of 37 million euros, while a EBITDA margin topped 5%. 
The German industrial group said it's seeing stable demand across all regions, but admitted there is some skepticism in the market over the outlook for the German economy. Let's get to Thomas Schultz, who is the CEO of Billfinger. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. If I can just start with one of the real highlights in the company numbers today, that EBITDA margin 5.1% today, that is a fairly significant step up from 3.4% same time a year ago. Just explain how you've managed to stretch out that EBITDA margin so much. Good morning, Carrie. It's nothing else than execution of our strategy, and it's nothing else than hard work of our good colleagues. Big thank you to all of them. Do you want to just give us a bit more color around that? Uh, I mentioned in the numbers today, you said cost discipline was here. You're also talking about de-risking, contributing to the margin. To what extent can this uh, expand further from the 5.1%? It will expand further. We promised for next year, five or five percent plus for the full year on the EBITDA level. Where is it coming from? Cost discipline is one thing, the efficiency program, what we are on the way to implement and finalizing at the end of the year will give us to the bottom line more than 40 million euro, which is roughly one percent EBITDA more. Then our self-propelled growth, which means we stopped like in US, that's actually the reason for negative order intake. We stopped quite a lot of business, but we don't want to go on worldwide in the United States, and that decreased our order intake, but we at the same time created quite a lot of additional growth, our products in existing markets all over. And that, of course, creates quite a good profitability run. Thomas, do you want to tackle the question around Germany? You've mentioned it in your release saying that the skepticism in the market regarding the German economy, is this manifesting itself in some of the demand numbers, the orders numbers that you're seeing at this point? It's actually quite an interesting question because this is not ongoing since a week. We are talking here about a multi-year impact on the German industry, especially on the high energy industry. We heard last week that the German government is giving some relief regarding tax and additional cost into the industry, into the high energy demanding industry. And we see throughout the industry more and more questions if they should invest in Germany or not. At the same time, I have to raise that, the whole government and the society is running for a higher sustainability level. So we have two kinds of demands at the moment in Germany for all industries, especially for the high energy industry. Higher efficiency and at the same time getting sustainability more and more through. And that is actually the core of our company. Uh, Thomas, good morning to you. Um, I, I wanted to just go back a little bit, perhaps, to those margins. I mean, sustaining them in what is effectively a a high inflationary environment or the pain of sustained uh, inflationary environment that we're currently seeing ourselves in. How are you able to maintain that margin then, not just for the full year, but beyond? It is. It starts with the top line. You take that where you can earn money on it. That sounds a little bit simple. But as you see with our restructuring process in US, if you don't do it, you have to do tougher cuts. And that is what we did with the order intake actually in the last 12 months. Second, you have to have your cost under control. Our cost efficiency program, our program to reduce roughly one third of all the admin positions in the group actually pays off a lot. And the main payoff will be next year and then the years to come. Then another element is clear investment, strategic investment into training and education because we have a lack 
of competent, qualified workers, not only in Germany, actually across all the regions we work. And we decided a year ago when we announced the efficiency program to take one quarter of the savings of the efficiency program back into training and education. And then the last is, of course, to optimize your value chain, which means you work from your suppliers towards the clients to explain what you do, to explain what you add value in efficiency and sustainability, and you calculate for the client the return, what they get in a positive way if they work with us. Uh, then how does, how does the, the acquisition of stock add to some of the efficiencies you're looking to create within the business? The, we want to be the number one in efficiency and sustainability for our customers to create that. The stock acquisition, in ben, especially in Belgium and the Netherlands, brings us closer to that target. We are able to offer more services. And you can imagine, as more you offer towards the value chain of the clients, as more you can impact efficiency, which means as more our clients earn money more when we are done with our work. Yeah, I want to talk about asset allocation then as well, particularly in Europe and considering the downbeat nature of some of the economics across Europe compared to the United States. Do you feel there's still enough in, the, in, the, in Europe ultimately for you to allocate uh, your asset to um, versus the United States and, and other regions? I mean, of course, the Middle East having been so profitable for yourselves as well. I think it is a very good question. At first, we have ample a lot to do. That's the reason why we train and educate. That's the reason why we recruit. That's the reason why we make M&A. The run for efficiency improvement is rocket high, and it will increase further. More than 90% of the business, what we do is on existing plants to help clients to get them more efficient, to help clients to get them more sustainable. And we have a huge installed base in Europe. It's not only Germany, all over Europe. And it actually performs very well, as you see in the segment figures for Europe. So we don't see any change of that regarding the demand. Of course, things like political unrest, very high administrative demands out of Brussels on all the companies, and a lot of limbo in the politics is not helping the whole situation. But as a CEO, as a company, our target is to be prepared no matter what will happen. And that is what we do with the company. Thomas, we are counting down to COP and I'm on page 16 of your presentation. You're talking about some form of a slowdown taking place in some of the new energy investments, LNG plants, hydrogen transport, carbon capture infrastructure, decision-making process has partly slowed down. What's behind that, Thomas? Is that the economics here? No, it's not the economics. It's the, especially in Europe, the high level of administration, what you have to have. The amount of groups to be involved, the amount of paper to fill out, to get approval and to go on is unbelievable. It's beyond belief. We see the German government and other governments are starting initiatives to reduce that. I think there it's five minutes after 12. Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it this morning. Thomas Schultz is the CEO of Bullfinger, uh, with the company having released their third quarter uh, numbers then this morning. Now over to China, which is reportedly considering ending a commercial freeze on purchases of Boeing's 737 MAX aircraft when Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping meet this week. 
That's according to Bloomberg. The potential agreement would mark a major breakthrough for Boeing after it lost its lead in the key China market, making no significant sales of its narrow-body jet there since at least 2018, before the model was grounded over two deadly crashes. Now, Turkish Airlines is in talks with Airbus to discuss an order of up to 355 new jets. That's according to state media. The airline is reportedly interested in 100 A350 models, as well as 250 uh, A321 Neo jets, as well as five cargo planes in what would be its biggest ever order. Abu Dhabi's Etihad Airways, seem, uh, Airways aims to triple passenger numbers by the end of the decade and double its fleet to 150 planes as part of a 10-year plan, which includes moving away from ultra-long-haul routes. Dan Murphy caught up with the CEO a little over a year into the job and asked how business is now looking. The is performing well. It's very well. I mean, we, as you know, we made a profit last year. Uh, we may, we're probably going to make a profit again this year. Uh, we have embarked in a journey to expand our margins. So we're working both on the revenue side and on the cost side. Uh, it looks very, I mean, simple, right? But it, it is simple, right? In the end, what you have to do is expand your margins by creating more revenue and reducing your costs without compromising on service. So I think the tricky here is how you pull efficiency out of the system. That's what we're doing right now. And, and the prospects for, for the next years are great. And all of this has to be in response to market fundamentals as well. As you say, coming out of COVID, we have seen travel rebounding. Demand is looking much better than what it was through those really hard years when cargo was really driving the business. How are you assessing current market fundamentals? I think they're good. I mean, uh, the market is growing, right? So if you, if, you, if you see the region, right, GDP in the region is growing 5%, 5-ish, 5 5-6%. 5, when you have that kind of GDP growth uh, in, in, in this type of region, right, uh, regions that are not, I mean, uh, that are not ultra-developed regions, right, that have a lot to, to grow, aviation grows two times. So there is no reason why aviation should not grow at least 10% per year over the next 7 to 10 years in the region, right? If you see what's going on in India, it's amazing, it's spectacular, right? You see what's going on in Abu Dhabi, it's, it's amazing, the new terminal. So demand is going to be there, and it's our obligation to work hard uh, to, to tap into that demand and, uh, and have a sustainable business. So, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think the fundamentals are good. Um, investing in new generation aircraft helps on the cost side because by doing that we become more efficient. So I don't see any fundamental issues in, in, in the next couple of years. Of course, one year you may get a crisis, demand may contract, but that's okay, right? I mean, think about it, 75% uh, of our demand comes from abroad. So we have about 20-25% coming from the US. 20-25% coming from Europe. 20-25% coming from Southeast Asia and GCC. And in, in India, I'm sorry. And 25% coming from GCC. So it's a very diverse portfolio. So when one region is not doing that great, I mean, we can compensate on the other regions. So we're confident that the fundamentals are there for our business model. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.